0: Well, look with me today to Acts chapter 7, and as you do, I have a, I have a poll question today. This is a poll question. Uh, the first question, feel free to raise your hands. How many of you, I mean, when we just got done singing that song and talked about God's grace meeting us, how many of you have been recipients of amazing grace? Right, Praise God. Right. I want you to just, just freeze for a moment in your mind and think, Wow, where has uh, where have I been a recipient of the grace of God? Okay? let's poll question number 1. Poll question number 2, don't raise your hands. Have I been someone who extends the same measure of grace given to me to others? Have I been someone who's extended the same measure of grace to others that has been given to me? That's why we need the resurrection of Jesus. Through the month of May, we're going to consider what it means to be the Easter people. And we're going to look at some people and some situations that require us some truths to help us understand what it means to be the Easter people. Because technically it's still Easter. It's a season of Easter and it ends the end of this month with Pentecost Sunday. But the Easter people. And here's why that's really important. Here's why we must continually focus on that. Because it is The Easter truth of the resurrection of Jesus that everything hangs on. If you dare to have the courage to follow this one they called Messiah who was born, who lived, who suffered, who died, who rose from the dead, ascended to the right hand of the God, Father, and is coming again. If you dare, if you even dare to claim that you're a follower of Jesus, the resurrection, Easter, everything hangs on that. But when you begin to read the primary evidences of the resurrection of Jesus, uniformly, the primary evidence of the resurrection of Jesus are people. People. When you read historians, when it comes to the resurrection of Jesus, their very primary evidence is nothing could have created this group of people called the church and change them in such a way that they'd be so willing to even lay down their life refusing to give up their profession of faith. That's the primary evidence. We we can talk about documentary evidence. We can talk about eyewitness accounts. We can talk about All those things, but fundamentally the primary evidence of the resurrection of Jesus is that nothing in all of history changed such a group of people and created, in essence, a new religion like never before. A a change that was instantaneous almost Than the resurrection of Jesus. Because if the resurrection does not create different people living out a different story than the rest of the narratives that are offered us in this world, then you know what? We would just be as well to worship a tree or the sun. Oh, by the way, we're getting into the season of sun worshiping, right? We'd be better off worshiping anything other than Jesus. So over and over again, historians speak about the people impacted by the resurrection. The question is, what do Easter people look like? What does it look like when Easter moves from a nice day to a season like we're in now to a life? What does it look like? We're going to try to imagine that the next few weeks. You see, Easter people are the kind of people the world needs today. The world needs Easter people today. And that's why we start at someone who's almost like an afterthought. And that is Stephen in Acts chapter 7. Let's look together to Acts chapter seven, and this is the word of the Lord for us today, talking about this man's life. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. "Look," he said, "I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God, and this, at this, they covered their ears, that is, the religious leaders in the crowd. They covered their ears and yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed at him, dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul who became the Apostle Paul. While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Jesus, receive my spirit. Or into your hands I commit my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and he cried out again, "Lord, do not hold this sin against them." When he had said this, he fell asleep. He died. Now, if you're unfamiliar with the story of Stephen, for this is the word of the God, word of the Lord to us today. Thanks be to God then I would encourage you, as I'll mention here in a little bit, to read Acts chapter 6 and 7 and get that whole story. But here's a question. How do you account for Stephen? How do you account for the life of Stephen and a willingness to sacrifice and be true and truthful to the resurrection of Jesus? Because that's why he's being killed. and there are many people around our world today who are being killed because of their belief in the resurrection of Jesus. So what can we learn from Stephen? Well, as I said, read Acts 6 and 7, but here are some things and I'm just this is just a list of some things that we need to know about Stephen. First of all, he was not a formal pastor. He wasn't a formal preacher. You need to know that right up front. Secondly, some say he was part of the first church board. When you read and get into Acts chapter 6. He was part of a group that their primary job was to help poor widows. So he was committed to serving the least. Here's another thing, though he wasn't like an ordained minister. He knew how to handle the Word of God. He was wise in the things of God. We also learn that his ministry touched those around him. His faith influenced the lives of others. He also gives one of the clearest arguments for Jesus. One of the clearest arguments for Jesus. So he knew what he believed in. But not only did he know what he believed in, he knew the difference it made. And then here's another thing. After his death, we read in Acts chapter 8 that he was missed sorely. That they just grieved his death. And that tells me something. He was a blessing to those who knew him. And then long after he died, if you go down into Acts chapter 11, they're still talking about the guy. And so he left the legacy of Christ-likeness. That brings me back to the question, how do you account for all of this? How do you account for Stephen's place as one of the Easter people? Well, again, we have to go backwards. Look at the larger context and look in Acts chapter 6. Because these are words that describe this man. Verse 5 says, he was a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. Verse 8, a man full of grace and power. And verse 15, I love this one. They saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Now, full disclosure, no one ever said to me that my face was like the face of an angel. Here's another thing. I don't ever remember my mother looking at me going, oh, you're such an angel. She was probably thinking quite the opposite. I, I don't know. I never looked like an angel. Probably didn't act like an angel as a child, for sure. No probably's about that. That's true. But what these descriptors do for us is they help us see that because of the resurrection, Stephen was a a person of grace, faith, and holiness. His life had a distinct Easter look graves to gardens. But here is what I believe is the answer to the question, how do we account for such a life? He was a follower of Jesus who was filled with grace and power. And as the the, uh, contemporary English Bible puts it, Stephen stood out among the believers for the way God's grace was at work in his life. Poll question. How many of you have experienced the amazing grace of God? Right. Wow. Grace was at work in his life. Stephen had come in contact with the generous grace of God. Stephen was no different than you or me. He was a recipient of the grace of God because of the resurrection of Jesus and was filled with God's presence, spirit. And my friends, that is such good news. That is good news. We see see in Stephen the evidence of the reality of resurrection and the generosity of God's grace. He was full of grace. He was full of resurrection grace. What good is the resurrection? If it doesn't change us, change me, do something in me. Well, Paul gives us an understanding of resurrection grace. In Romans 8, he says, And if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who lives in you. In other words, there's a new power available for a new life. And that's what Stephen was full of. We do a lot of things with the word grace. We say things like, grace is God's resources at Christ's expense. Or we say things like, grace is the unmerited favor of God. And we we keep it comfortably out there. But as I read Scripture... Grace is the activity of God to meet my life and do new things. To give new life. Truly, to make new creation. To become new and different people. And that's what was happening in this guy's life. This was the power of grace given to him. He was so abundantly filled with the generous grace of God, the amazing grace of God, it turned the grace of his soul into a garden of life of the God he loved, a life to grow in. That's a really good question for those of us who say we've experienced the grace of God. My question is, Jeff, are you growing in the grace of God still? You see, this is all good news This is all good news. The same power that raised Jesus from the dead is available for you and me. Stephen knew that death had lost. And what he did was he lived as if that were true. Because it was. And it is. But here's the truth. I hope you listen closely to that prayer that Molly prayed at the start. Beautiful prayer, Molly. When she prayed about the hard places in life, not shying away from that, the dark places in life, not shying away from that, it's often hard to believe that anything in our world has changed. Nine people shot to death in Allen, Allen, Texas. Death in our families, that comes like a runaway freight train. Unexpected emergencies that take place that we never expect. And we look and we go, where is the resurrection of Jesus? And we need to do that. God's big enough for us to ask those questions. But here's the challenge for us, looking at our world. We are prepared to believe we should live in fear, not in hope. We are prepared to believe in payback, but not forgiveness. We are prepared to believe in the power of anger, but not in the power of love. We are prepared to believe that we need to build more walls to keep us safe and protected from strangers and enemies. As James Coaster puts it. He goes on and says, but in an age when words of fear, retribution, and anger dominate the news and fill our ears, words of hope, forgiveness, and love seem an idle tale at worst and unbelievable at best. Yet, the promise of the risen Lord is that hope, not fear, has the last word. The promise of the risen Lord is that forgiveness, not retribution, has the last word. The promise of the risen Lord is that love, not anger, has the last word. That's the promise of the risen Lord For you and for me. So my question to myself and to you today is this. Where do you need the generous resurrection grace of God to be poured out today? Where do you need God to take something that's dead in you, a grave, and turn it into something of life, a garden? Where is it? Where is it? Where do you need hope restored? Where do you need forgiveness to meet you? You know, You can't go forward if forgiveness isn't real. Here's the good news. It's generous from God. Where do you need forgiveness to meet you? What fears do you have that you need to entrust to God that I have What place of anger needs to be helped and healed by God? See, here's the posture of Jesus towards you and me. This is the posture of Jesus. Describing him, John the Gospel writer says, From his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. Don't you love that? Grace upon grace upon grace. So, where is it today, my friends? Where do you need the activity of God? Not just something to cover something, not just some definition of grace that is good Christian ease, but where do you need the actual activity of the resurrected Jesus to meet you today, to be your strength today? And don't think for a moment that that means all of a sudden everything's going to be peachy. Didn't work out that way for Stephen. But at the end of the day, Stephen saw the glory of God, saw what really mattered, and leaned into that. Why did Stephen live his life this way? Look again at his life. And here's my answer. This is my conclusion. This is my very um, theological, technical conclusion. He couldn't help himself. He couldn't help himself. He was not only a recipient of grace, but he became this conduit of grace as well. These words are hard to get my head around. While they were stoning him. And just so you know, they're not talking about little landscaping stones. right? Probably more like this. While they're throwing these rocks on them, while they were stoning him, not before everything got bad. Not after everything got better. But while they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And he fell on his knees and he cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. He died. Nearly word by word, Stephen shows what happens when the living Christ lives in a person And how that results in a life of generous grace. Just like Jesus, he basically quotes Psalm 31.5, which was read for us today. I commit my life into your care. Like Jesus, he offers a generous grace of forgiveness. You know, if you want to see what it looks like for someone to be filled with the resurrected presence of Christ in the power of the Holy Spirit, don't go looking for a sign. Don't go looking for some great power or authority. Don't go looking for some spectacular experience. If you want to see what it looks like, don't conjure up some spectacular demonstration of God's reality. Just look at Stephen. His was a life of generous grace. What are we to do with the grace we've received? Hear it. The grace we've received. Well, let's first talk about, which is at the central place of this passage, a word about forgiveness. Another misunderstood word. What is and is not forgiveness? Forgiveness does not condone sinful choices. Forgiveness does not dismiss consequences. And sometimes forgiveness does not protect others from consequences. Oftentimes. Forgiveness does not enable unhealthy and destructive behavior. Forgiveness does not minimize the damage of another's actions. Forgiveness is not based on whether or not the offending party repents or acknowledges wrongdoing. Forgiveness does not make everything go back to the way it was before. Forgiveness does not immediately bring immediate restoration of trust or a guarantee of reconciliation. Forgiveness is one direction. Reconciliation requires more than one. Forgiveness doesn't make everything all right. Forgiveness isn't a ticket to continue with your hurtful behavior because you've been forgiven or because you've offered forgiveness. Rick Warren said this, one of the best quotes on forgiveness. Let me explain where forgiveness is not. Forgiveness does not mean the instant restoration of trust. Forgiveness is instant. Trust must be rebuilt over time. Forgiveness is based on grace. Trust is built on the works. And I would say the works of grace. You earn trust, you don't earn forgiveness. So what does forgiveness do? Thinking about Stephen, thinking about generous grace. Forgiveness says, I choose to be free from the sin of unforgiveness. Forgiveness says, I will not inflict suffering on the other. It's a big one. See, that's, that's opposite of that payback culture we live in. That says, "Oh yeah? You can do that to me?" Well, wait till you see what you have coming. Right? And we're all very well trained in that. Forgiveness says, "I will not condemn them." Cuz forgiveness understands that judgment is God's territory. And forgiveness says, "I will forgive as God forgives me." What measure of grace have you been given? Think on that. How rich. I, can't, I cannot quantify the grace that has been given to me by so many, too many people that's so undeserving. In other words, when we're talking about grace and forgiveness, in other words, grace is not a free pass that winks at sin and wrong. It's quite the opposite, actually. Grace desires to be like Jesus and love others so much that you invite them, as Jesus said, to go and sin no more. But grace also remembers that we all fall short of the glory of God, and because that's true, it extends grace outward. But here's the kicker. Without God, without us, God's not going to magically create forgiveness. And without God, we can't offer grace. We can't. Let's, we need to get that in our minds and our hearts. We can't. I know that goes against the grain of our culture that tells us we can do anything You know what a poor bag of goods we sell to a culture when we say, if you just think hard enough, you can get it done. Or if you really want it, if you really want it and work hard enough, you can do it. I would love the bat cleanup for the New York Yankees. I have news for you. Even when I was playing ball as a kid, it ain't happening. And it's sort of like along those lines. We we can't. Paul recognized that. Listen to what Paul writes to the Corinthians. As he's writing in his chapter on resurrection, 1 Corinthians 15, he says, I am what I am by God's grace. And God's grace hasn't been for nothing. Nothing is better than him. So what are we to do with the grace we have been given? Well, Peter tells us, he says, Grow in the grace and the knowledge of both our Lord and the Savior Jesus Christ. To him be glory both now and forever. We ought to enlarge our lives with grace. Remember the grace received, because grace is something we are to practice. Grace is something we are to live. Grace is something we are to demonstrate. Grace is like a muscle. And you have to move it. You've got to activate it to strengthen it. And what's really interesting is our world is very content for us to sit on the couch and eat chips of our soul and not exercise the muscle of grace. And we do that by saying payback's yeah, that's acceptable. By saying you should be angry at that person, by saying they are your enemy. But grace is a muscle to exercise in the power of the Spirit. A couple of years ago, Peter Winter tells of a dying friend. This friend was dying but he was dying with such courageous faith and grace. So he shared that story with another friend, Jonathan Rock. And the idea of grace so impressed Jonathan, and Peter said to him, well, Jonathan, why does the idea of grace inspire you? Now, listen closely to what this man says. He said this to his friend Peter. Grace is some combination of generosity and magnanimity kindness and forgiveness and empathy all above the ordinary call of duty and bestowed even or especially when not particularly earned. He goes on and says, We see it demonstrated in heroic ways and in small everyday contexts. And then he said, But I guess regardless of the context, it's always at least a little unexpected and out of the ordinary. I don't know if you noticed this, but we live in a world where grace is unexpected. It is unexpected because we expect to be permitted to pay back when someone wrongs us. We expect retaliation against those who hurt or offend us. That's just what you do. We expect to have a right to be angry when treated unfairly. And we expect to be able to set people straight when we are right. But that's why our world needs Easter people. People of generous grace, people who've received such grace from God, people who give evidence to the reality of the resurrection of Jesus by the different way we see the world and others. And how that now changes how we treat others. We see the world differently because of resurrection. In fact, what happened at the resurrection of Jesus was all the worldviews of the world were blown away. As we shared in our men's group, these words from N.T. Wright, you can't fit the resurrection into the existing worldviews that we've got. The resurrection brings its own worldview with it and says, if you're going to understand the way things are, you start with this, this empty tomb, this crucified Christ, this empty tomb, and you work your way out of that. If Jesus really has been raised, then everything else is different. Amen. That's the gospel. And if we don't anchor ourselves in that Christ and that gospel, we're not Christians. That's so important. And that is what changed the world. That's why the primary evidence for the resurrection of Jesus is this, this amazing, amazing, miraculous development called the church. Because it could have never happened. They would have never, ever, ever kept their testimony to the death if it was a sham. They would have never, ever sacrificed everything they had to make sure they were caring for one another. They would have never, ever, in the middle of a Roman Empire that was killing them and oppressing them, told their loved ones, Pray for the emperor. It was radical. It turned everything on its head. Remember that man, Jonathan Rouch, who described grace to Peter Winner? Well, he went on to say this. Now hear this. You see, it's grace that makes me wish I weren't an atheist. It's an atheist who gave us a beautiful definition of grace. When I read that, Now it's been, I think that was written a couple years back. I wonder when my family thinks of me, when my neighbors think of me, when those who disagree with me, those who are not like me, Those who don't believe like me, I wonder if they say Jeff's life of grace makes me wish I was not an atheist. That's how it speaks to me. How does it speak to you? I would like to take you back to another person who was unjustly treated and murdered, executed by a religious crowd. As they were killing him, he said this, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. I've questioned what the purpose of this sermon was. I wondered if it really mattered. But I have to believe that the Holy Spirit is trying to reach us beyond all the categories that we think are so important to remind us of what the gospel is, generous grace outpoured by a generous God that transforms our lives and in the power of a resurrected Christ in the presence of the Holy Spirit. We live differently than the rest of the world. We don't take up the weapons of the world. We don't take up the philosophies of the world. We live in the life and the power of Jesus. This table that we're about to partake in transports us back to Jesus and all he did. It's what from the very start, the people of God have done. Gone back to the cross. Isn't that interesting? Uh, people of God have gone back, time again to the table. We've gone back to the place of Christ's self-donation. We've gone back to the place when He is the least powerful. We've gone back to the place where He was allowing Himself to be treated so poorly. But it also transports us back to the Stevens of the world. It reminds us that to look like Jesus is to love like Jesus. To look like Jesus is to forgive like Jesus. To look like Jesus is to live a life of generous grace. I don't know where that applies to you today. I, I don't. I don't even presume to know. I know where it applies to me today. So I invite you, as we come to the table today, Do you need the forgiveness of God today? Do you need to ask for God's forgiveness today? Is there something you need to repent of, you need to turn away from, and you need to turn to him, and you need to ask him to forgive you? Is there someone that you need to extend forgiveness to? You've heard the definitions of forgiveness now, but is there someone you need to say, I forgive you? I forgive you. Is there someone you sense God is calling you to give more grace to because, you know, just maybe, just maybe they're doing the best they can and you need to extend more grace to or are you in need of a fresh way of seeing the world through the lens of resurrection grace? You're you're so trapped in a a view of the world that is so temporal. I find myself drawn into that, and I have to remind myself that he's the God who will make all things right, the resurrected Christ. So let's take a moment and invite the Spirit of God to meet us where we are. Let's just take a moment wherever you are right now, before we receive the communion. Meet us, O God, by your Spirit's power and presence. This unexpected life of Stephen challenges me today. Remind me of the generosity of your grace to me. And call me in my life to be as generous with grace to others, especially the other. As generous as you have been to me. Come, Holy Spirit, we pray. And as we come to this table, Lord, we come in confession that apart from you, we can't do any of this. We need Jesus. And as we partake in these elements, as we remember what you've done for us, when we put you central in our lives, placing our faith in you. We pray this in the name of the God who loves us, the Son who gave all for us, the Spirit who is among us and in us. In Jesus' name, amen.